0: So I want to wish you a happy second Sunday in Advent. Uh, I appreciated the words of uh, Steve Weeb from last week as he began our uh, meditations in Advent as we approach Christmas. This morning I hope to kill two birds with one stone. Uh, we are finishing our series in uh, in, in Ephesians, <laughs> but it's also Advent. And we want to we want to meditate on Advent. We want to think about the importance of Advent, and so we want to look at how these themes, as we're finishing Ephesians, actually it works quite well. These last few uh, this is our second last sermon in Ephesians, and it actually works quite well. So as we approach Christmas, we want to think about the reason for Christmas. We're we're in the season of Advent, and Advent has to do with coming and we think about the first coming of Christ, but also during Advent, we reflect on the second coming of Christ. I'm going to reflect more on that next week, thinking about the second coming. But this morning, we want to think about the first coming of Christ and the the life that we enter into as a result of the incarnation. We think about the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. But we shouldn't jump too quickly to the cross at Christmas. I find that we do that. We go to these events at Christmas, either be a Christmas play or whatever, cantata, some kind of event with music, scriptures read, and we can quite quickly jump to the cross. And I can understand there's some evangelistic purposes to that. But we don't want to jump too quickly there. We have Easter for the cross. We have Good Friday. It is true that the Christian life is centered around the cross, but the incarnation is also an essential part of the life of the believer, of each believer. When we become Christians, we, be- we become participants in the incarnation, we, be- we participate in that reality. What is the incarnation? It's the Son of God. It's God Himself becoming a human being, taking on flesh, being fully God and fully man. So what am I saying then? When we participate in the incarnation, we enter into the life of God. First Peter says, we become partakers of the divine nature. We become equals with God and with all other believers. This is affirmed in Hebrews 2, verse 11, where the the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us His brothers because He became one of us. He took on our nature so that we could become like God, so that in our flesh, in our in our human body, we could take on God we could become what God intended. We don't become gods, that's not what I'm saying but we take on the life of God. We, we are being restored to that original purpose of being equals with God as he walked with his people in the garden as he walked with his people in paradise there was that equality there and that's what he's been that's what he has begun to restore through the Incarnation. The book of Hebrews also talks about the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, became incarnate and thereby entered into the sufferings of His people, both through the Incarnation and through His life on earth and through the death, through His death. All of His life was entering into the sufferings, the the, the life of His people. that uh, The song that we sang this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, has incredible new meaning for me this year. It's been a hard year, I think, for everybody. But this particular ver- line that says, Come to earth to taste our sadness. That is... Truly a wonderful line, Uh, and one that we should not be quick to, to glaze over. The fact that Jesus came and bore our sorrows. Jesus enters into our suffering with us. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we see God's concern, His care for His people, especially the people on the margins the people who, are, who society considers outcasts, those who are humble in society. His plans for salvation we see in the Gospel of Luke are not concerned with... Uh, God doesn't reveal His plans for salvation to the Roman emperor. He doesn't reveal His plans for salvation to King Herod or to the religious leaders for that matter. God reveals His plans for salvation, to those on the margins, to Elizabeth, to to Mary, to Anna, to Simeon. If those people weren't in the Bible, we would have no clue who these people were. They're nobodies. They were nobodies in the grand scheme of things, in all of Israel. Do you think anybody in Jerusalem would have heard of these people? But, but God revealed His purposes to Elizabeth. She was the one who had John the Baptist. God revealed His purposes to Mary. She's the one who bore the Son of God. And, and the prophetess Anna and Simeon. Simeon lifted up Jesus in His arms in the temple and said, Here is your salvation. Now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For... My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and be the glory of your people Israel. But Mary said, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Here's the key verse. In Luke 1, verses 51 and 52, He has showed strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Jesus' ministry was concerned with exalting the humble and humbling the exalted. Jesus came to reverse, the, to come in reverse. He was, it was a ministry of reversal. Now, this is where we get into Ephesians 6. If you remember previously in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul exhorts believers to be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love, is Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is Paul's exhortation. Be imitators of Christ, in other words, who gave Himself, who gave up His place in heaven to lift up the humble, to lift up those who needed salvation, to redeem. He gave Himself. That is the message, that, that, that is the epitome of, of the Christian religion, is that Jesus Christ gave Himself for sinners. And of course, I'm getting to the cross. You can't have, of course, you can't have Christmas without the cross. These two things work together. I, I, I know that might be a little contradictory to what I said, but we still want to meditate on the Incarnation. The Incarnation shows that the Gospel is concerned with redeeming human beings. That is an important element to the Incarnation. Is that God cares about human beings, cares about our, flat, our, our, our literal physical body? He cares about our lives. He entered into the life of the world. He didn't come and try to change things, He entered into to change, you know, very inconspicuously. None of the Roman emperors were wondering, you know, were were, would have heard the news of this Jesus dying on a cross. It was just another day. It was just another crucifixion. Anyways, another thing that I want to say about the incarnation: it shows that the gospel is concerned about bringing equality amongst human beings. So this week, we want to continue on our discussion. We want, to, we want to keep the incarnation in mind, and within that, being imitators of God. That, that is a part of being an imitator of God, is a life formed, a life lived in relationship, the incarnation, patterned after the incarnation. It, being an imitator of God, The we want, we want to think about those things as we look at this passage because i think paul still has this in mind he's been he's been laying out what is this what does it mean to live in the household of god what does it mean to be god's people in this world so if you have your bibles you can open to ephesians chapter 6 starting at verse 1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, open your word to us this morning. Grant us grace to know spiritual things. Grant us understanding, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In this morning's passage, we're presented with two different relationships but similar in the way that they are to relate to one another. Well, I'm sure you're wondering, what's the connection here between these two relationships and the incarnation, as was mentioned before? I'll get there in a moment, but let's just look at what this passage is saying. This passage is showing the relationship between children and parents. I wish there were more kids here, so I could preach right at them. There's not a lot of times that preach right at the kids. You can look at Phil and preach at him. <laughs> right. <laughs> so is the relationship between children and parents and between slaves and masters, which are both the the relationship between these the, these two relationships are informed, they're impacted they're empowered by the incarnation. And I'll explain that in a moment as we go on. But let's proceed. The relationship between children and parents and slaves and masters were very similar in Paul's day because children were essentially owned by their fathers. They, ha- they really, depending on, I guess, it's hard to know, but depending on if you were in a probably more upper class, you probably weren't owned necessarily. But in some households, slaves had more status than the children. So Paul is uh, trying to help show what is this relationship now, now that you're a believer, now that you're brought into the company of faith, now that you're in Christ, what is this relationship between, I'm going to say parent, uh, parent and child look like now? He's been discussing the lifestyle for Christians. We've been getting this, inter, this weaving between doctrine and ethics as we've been going through Ephesians. And it seems as though he's been targeting adults exclusively, but children are also included in God's plan for new creation. There are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord as is the proper thing to do. There aren't very many things directed explicitly toward children in the Bible. And so this is an important one for them to hear. But I won't spend too much time on it. Rather, that... Children are to show respect toward their parents, and parents are to treat their children with dignity. Don't provoke them to anger. Instead, raise them with discipline and instruction in the Lord. And I think this is really what Paul is getting at, is that uh, this, the way that things, things are changing here for, for those who are part of the new creation, don't treat your children harshly. He's saying, you call yourself a Christian, treat your children with dignity, but discipline them, instruct them, but don't treat them like a second-class citizen in your own home. They, the fathers had a lot of authority over their children, and they had the right to discipline them, probably in a, in a harsh and in a brutal manner. But Jesus cared deeply for the little children. It says in Luke, Now they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to Him. him. He called the infants, the, the children to Him, saying, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So, the gospel brings equality for all people in the family of God. This is the family of God. Those who are part of the church worldwide are part of God's family. And this is interesting. Under the eyes of God, parents are equal to their children. But... That does not negate the fact that parents have authority over their children. They're to train and discipline their children in the fear of the Lord. Even though there is that equality, and what I mean is that every member of the church is equal in the eyes of God, but God has still ordained these, these institutions where everybody in the church is equal, but there are still leaders. But that doesn't mean that leaders are intrinsically uh, higher in... uh, There there isn't something about the leader that makes them more uh, better than somebody else. We need leaders, just like we need leaders in the house. We need leaders in the church. But there is still that equality. There is the dignity that comes with being equals. This is something that goes back to our discussion way back at Thanksgiving, where I talked about uh, that every member of the church needs to be treated with equality. Every single member that comes into the church is to be treated with the dignity that comes with being a human being. And if we're a part of the family of God, the dignity that comes with being a child of God. Now, this is where the Incarnation does affect the relationship to, between a father and their children, uh, parents and their children. But now we move into this more controversial passage where Paul is talking about the relationship between a slave and their master. It is similar to that between a parent and a child. So he writes bond servants, or rather, I'm going to say Slaves. From here. It's really, that's what he's talking about. Slaves. We like to whitewash that word a little bit, but that's what he's talking about. And I'm going to explain maybe some of the controversy here in a moment. But he commands slaves to obey their masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, just as they would for the Lord. Think about... uh uh, Philippians 2 as we think about what does it mean, fear and trembling. In Philippians 2 he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. First of all, not trying to earn your salvation, but doing something. Showing that you are saved. Go out and do something. But what does he mean by fear and trembling? Paul Paul likes that, that phrase. Uh, it, it's almost a reverence. Have a deep respect for who you're you're working your salvation out from. Have a deep respect. Almost be afraid. <laughs> Trembling comes from fear. And, I, and it's almost a, it's a metaphor. Have respect. Revere. Have reverence for your Master, in other words. Just as you would for Christ Himself. Respect the lord deeply. This is the this is the attitude that a slave was to have that Paul is calling them to. Respect, pardon me, respect your master deeply like you would for Christ. Respect your master like he is Christ himself. And they're implored to serve their masters not only with eye service or a people-pleasing mentality, but ultimately as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So this is, this is what he's getting at, is that you're serving your master. Think of him as Christ himself. You think about yourself as a slave of Christ. Therefore, treat him like you would Christ. By serving one's master as unto the Lord with respect. A slave is fulfilling the will of God. Do good works, not only to be praised by your earthly master, but ultimately, do good works to be praised by your heavenly master, by your heavenly father. Give your service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, he says. Knowing, Paul writes in verse 8, you can have assurance that whatever good a person does, they will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or an emancipated person, a free person. I think there's this attitude here that Paul is getting at where he's saying, your master may not be a believer, and that's okay. Treat them with the dignity that they deserve as a human being. Think of them as Christ there with you. Even if the master is treating you harshly, show respect to who you're serving. This is where you. This is where you're. This is this is the situation you're in. Now, this is for. He also addresses Christian slave owners, which just seems like an oxymoron in our day and age, but they're not off the hook. They're to treat their slaves properly, with dignity. A, a, A Christian person that that has slaves in their household. Are to treat them with dignity. He says, "Stop your threatening." Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. This is what this is what Paul means. God, who is in heaven, he doesn't see master and slave. He doesn't. He doesn't doesn't see two believers who are a master and a slave. He sees two believers and he sees the way that they have treated each other. He doesn't see, oh, you're the master. Come, be in my, my VIP area. Slave, come and serve us. It's come be with me in heaven. He sees two human beings. He sees two Christians. Two people born again. Remember, in the eyes of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all are one in Christ. When a a Christian slave and a Christian master go to church together, they're one in Christ. Even from Monday to Saturday, they're one in Christ. Therefore, treat each other as such. But Paul acknowledges that the slave is still subordinate to their master and should obey their master. But the master should be kind and gracious to their slave as well. This begs the question, of course, (laughs) does Paul endorse slavery? I think that's the controversial issue that comes up with a passage like this because, of course, it's been used to... Uh, abusively, uh, and of course, people have used to say, "How can Christianity be true when it endorses the treatment of slaves, or uh, when it when it seems, pardon me, when it seems to endorse owning slaves?" Now, this is the this is these are kind of my reflections on this. It doesn't, in my opinion, Paul doesn't really wade into the political issues that we would like him to. And it's difficult to truly understand his stance on things like this. I I, I see that we, you know, progressive Christians, more li- I'll say progressive Christians, however you want to take that term, they they appeal to Old Testament prophets to the teachings of Jesus, saying, "Look at." In, but for their social justice gospel. Whereas us, as conservative Christians, we lean heavily on Paul for our theology, for justification by faith alone, for the theology of the atonement, and and things like that. We really rely on the Apostle Paul. And Paul doesn't... <laughs> well, we we think that Paul doesn't really wade into... Kind of the ethics that Jesus does. Jesus is the, the ministry of Jesus is very radical. He, he, Jesus is talking to people who are on the out uh, pardon me Jesus is talking to outcasts of society. That's where his ministry is and Paul is real, very doctrinal. Jesus of course is doctrinal he's, but he's showing a lot of his, a lot of his theology if you want to say through the way that he's living. And Paul is writing stuff down. We, we consider Paul almost like a, uh, well, especially in my circles, it's easy to take Paul as a theology textbook. But we can't do that necessarily. This is, this is what I'm getting at. Uh, I think Paul is concerned with, with how the government is treating Christians. Of course he is. And Paul does make political statements, he says, Jesus is Lord. That's a subversive political statement. But he was much, much, much more concerned for the well-being of the church. He didn't really address those political issues that, that we have in our mind, because I think, this, this is my opinion anyways, I think in his mind, the status quo was not going to change very quickly. It, was, it, it may not have even changed, I'm sure as a a person, Paul was immersed in the Old Testament. He was immersed in the Pentateuch, in in the Old Testament law. And the law treated slaves quite well. So I'm sure Paul had a high view of of slaves and, and emancipation. But this is what he's getting at, is that the status quo probably wasn't going to change quickly or easily. And so in any context that you're in, that you may find yourselves in, he's getting at, responding and acting in godliness, even, it's about responding and acting in godliness, even though the external circumstances are not ideal. This is the situation you're in. Paul can't tell, Paul isn't saying, Masters, free your slaves necessarily, but this is what he's saying to slaves. Slaves, you're in this situation. Do the best that you can in this situation. Now, I wish he would have said, Masters, free your slaves, but uh, but he tells them, uh, treat them right. I think Philemon helps us with this a little bit. It's a helpful book uh, for interpreting Paul's views here. and it's, hard, it's a book that's hardly preached on, but it's so profound and it's beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of Christ's love for his church on display through Paul and this servant Onesimus. He was writing Paul was writing to Philemon, Onesimus, his master in order to encourage him to show grace toward his runaway slave. In his letter, Paul praises God for Philemon's faith in God and love for the believers in the congregation, and informs Philemon that he is returning Onesimus to him no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, Paul writes, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He continues, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Don't miss this. This is wonderful stuff. Paul is telling Philemon to consider his slave Onesimus, who is a fellow believer, consider him a brother, consider him a partner in ministry. But the thing is Paul isn't telling him free your slave. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't. But he definitely does not condone the typical attitude of masters toward their slaves. And in that way, that's countercultural. He's saying don't consider your slave to be a second class human being. That's countercultural in Paul's day. So even in that that is a wonder that That is the gospel influencing Paul's views of slavery. Think of the slave as a brother and as as a partner. Think of them as an equal, even though that slave is subordinate to you. He works for you. There is still that element there. So I don't know if Paul endorses slavery. I don't think we should. I'm not endorsing it. But what I'm saying is that Paul, in his mind, is always writing, how do you respond in the situation that you're in? This is where the importance of the incarnation comes in. What does this have to do with slavery? The incarnation of the Son of God on earth, as I said at the beginning, the the incarnation of Jesus, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, fully God, became a human being on earth. His subsequent ministry, after after becoming a baby, His ministry shows God's consistent concern for the marginalized. We see that throughout the Old Testament, God condemned Israel for their... uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? He, their they, 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 disregard for those in the margins, for the, for the outcasts. This was part of their law. They were supposed to be people who cared for the, the society's outcasts because that's God's character, to care about those who are hurting, to care about those who are sick. And it's no surprise then that Jesus was reaching out to these people It was nothing new. He was fulfilling Israel's ministry. He reached out to them to heal the poor and the sick and the hurting, to give sight to the blind, to give uh, uh, hearing to the deaf, to heal the crippled. It was wonderful. uh, These were wonderful miracles but they're also an act of mercy and a manifestation of equality amongst all human beings. What society considers abhorrent, God considers wonderful, worthy to be redeemed, worthy to be looked upon. And that—that that is a, an interesting phrase in biblical terms, the, the fact of being looked upon. That means that there is a a relationship there, that a relationship is wanting to be had. Because we remember in Genesis when Cain, it says that Cain left the presence of the Lord, meaning there was a relationship change. But Jesus looked upon these people. That's why we say, May the Lord make his face shine upon you. Because we want him to have good favor toward you, to have favor toward you. So Jesus considered these people to be in his favor. Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, but exalted the humble in society. He condemned the hypocrisy, but embraced the humble attitude that people brought to Him. He, you know, He would say, your faith has made you well. This is a key aspect of incarnational living. The way that Jesus lived, that is incarnational living. God Himself, the character of God on earth. Incarnational living says that believing slaves and believing masters are one in Christ. Incarnational living says that believers live by a different set of standards, set by Christ, the incarnated Son of God. In the community of believers, the exalted are brought low, and the low are, brought, are exalted. What do I mean by that? If we had Justin Trudeau come in here, which would be awesome actually, uh, I mean, having a politician come in here, like, come in and let us preach to you. (laughs) But if Justin Trudeau came in here, the Prime Minister, the Right Honorable Prime Minister came in here, he would just, and a homeless person came in here, they would be equal. This is what I mean. This high status is brought low. The, the, you know the homeless man with a presumably you know we just think he has a lower status. They're brought together in equal status. Think about you know you'd have a higher class person with a millionaire coming here and somebody in the, in the lower class, so me uh, coming in here, and we are brought together one in Christ. That, that is incarnational living. The exalted are brought low, and the lower exalted. They're brought to the same status in the eyes of God. Incarnational living says that no Christian is too good to serve another human being. Get that. Incarnational living says to have the mind of Christ. This is what Paul is saying. This is what I really believe Paul is getting at. This is our incarnational living. It's to have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God did not account equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is incarnational living. It's becoming less to lift people up. It's becoming less to serve others. This is, this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. Masters, do not harm your slaves anymore. Because they're equal with you. So the gospel is revealed in this way. When parents and masters show their respect to their children and subordinates, as if serving the Lord... The Gospel is revealed in this way when when children and subordinates are respecting their authority as imitators of God. Children are to obey their parents. Parents are to treat their children with dignity and respect. Slaves respect and obey their masters. Masters, respect and treat your slaves right. And this is for both parents and masters. Know that he who is both their children and slaves, Master, and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with Him. So everybody in the community, this is incarnational living right here, everybody in the community of believers should treat each other properly with equality on Sunday morning and from Monday to Saturday. And even when we leave the fellowship, the way that we treat unbelievers is an essential part of incarnational living. It's about bringing the character of God wherever we go. And this is what Paul is getting at here. This is what he's been talking about throughout this whole letter. Appropriating God's character as we've entered into the divine life. Go and live in that way. Now, in the West, we don't own slaves on a mainstream level anyways that's a good thing <laughs> don't think we should be owning slaves it does this passage doesn't necessarily give us permission to do that but how do we apply this text to today well there are believers who are managers and leaders and bosses who may who are over who are an authority over other people Paul's exhortation this is this is how this applies to these kind of situations. Christian bosses should be the best bosses to work for because they're kind and gracious. But they're not a pushover, but they're kind, they're fair. I love working for Christian people. And that's what, that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. Make it so that, th- that people want to work for you. This is part of living the incarnate life. Make it so that people want to work for you. Just like people wanted to come to Jesus because He was so kind and generous and gracious and wanted to be with people. Now, if you're in a position, if you're in... If you're under somebody's authority, if you're subordinate to somebody, respect them. And obey even if they're not a Christian, respect them. Obey them for you're actually obeying the Lord. Christian workers should be the best workers because they respect their overseers. Because they're because they're living in that incarnational life. So we're, we're part of this incarnation of life. We've been brought together. We've been brought alive together with Christ. And God has prepared these good works for us. It's about being an imitator of God. And Paul has been laying that out for us. What it looks like in marriage. What it looks like in the, the relationship between a family. And what it looks like in the economy. <laughs> in all of, you know, rest of life. What is this being imitators of God, look like. And of course, in the congregation. And it's about living in the incarnation, participating in the incarnation, which is humility. Lord, uh, give us grace to live in the incarnation. Help us to meditate upon that this week. O Lord, humble us to be servants. Thank you that you are our King, that you came and entered into our suffering. Go with us this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.